the golden rule is, perhaps you can uh, complete the sentence, treat others like as you wish to be treated, or like you'd want to be treated. And it's right in the Bible. Jesus even said it. And in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. You find it in Matthew 7. And in this he said, summarizes what the Old Testament commanded. Whatever the Old Testament was commanding, I mean, there's the love love God with all you have, but um, the part about how you're supposed to treat other people, just treat other people how you wish to be treated. Do unto others as you would do unto yourself. Treat others like you want to be treated. Love your neighbor as yourself. And many people would say they try to live by this basic principle. I mean, if you ask people whether they're Christians, whether whatever the religion they follow, if you ask people, like, well, how do you try to live your life? Like, uh, well, I, you know, I just try to be a good person. I try to do to other people what I want them to do to me. And many people, mistakenly, argue that all religions are basically the same because every one of them boils down to this. Just try to treat other people how you want to be treated. And, of course, there is kind of this rule or this way of life that you can find in many of the religions because it's uh, almost in, intuitively you can you can just see it in life and it's something that God has hardwired into us so you would expect us to arrive at that conclusion no matter where we are in the world. But I don't know about you, sometimes it can be difficult to treat people how I like to be treated. And usually I find that instead of treating people how I like to be treated, it's actually easy for me to treat people like they've treated me. And uh, if they're impatient with me, it's easy for me to be impatient with them. If they're harsh with me, it's easy for me to be harsh with them. I find it's easiest to reflect back to others whatever they've been to me. Instead of treating others how I like to be treated, I'm often tempted to treat them how they've treated me. So, well, I'd like to be treated patiently, but instead of treating them how I like to be treated, which is patiently, I treat them how they've treated me. If they've treated me impatiently, so I'm going to be impatient with them. And I'm sure you can relate to the experience. Have you noticed that it's a lot easier to be kind to people who are kind to you? It's a lot easier to be patient with people who are patient with you. Even though almost everyone you meet would say that they try to treat others how they want to be treated, most of the time we tend to treat people how they've treated us instead of treating them how we'd like to be treated. And this week we're continuing this series called Pictures of Following Jesus. And the Bible tells us to repent, to trust in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to put our trust in Jesus, to put our faith in Him. And this is how we become followers of Jesus. But what do all those mean, to repent, to trust, to believe, to put our faith in Him? And a picture is worth a thousand words. And in this series we're going through six pictures, uh, that, through six passages that show us pictures of what following Jesus looks like. And So take a moment to flip to the back of your songbook. The very last page gives us our roadmap. This page is our DNA of our church. Uh, what is Good News Church all about? And the first thing is, as a community, Nick reminded us of this, we are surrendering all of life to Jesus, inviting others to do the same. And so last week we looked at a picture of surrender, and Nick reminded us at the beginning that um, Jesus is worth it. That's why we surrender to him. And so our first picture we, last week, it might be hard for you to see, you can look at it later, but there's a bunch of coins here. And it reminds us of what, what's valuable to us. What do we treasure? What is worth what, what do we find our worth in or what is worth something to us? And we surrender to what we find most valuable. And so is God most valuable to us? Is he worth the most to us? And we surrender to that. And so we surrender our lives to Jesus. 
But then uh, we surrender to Jesus by practicing those five community practices, believing the gospel, living as family, loving as servants, going as messengers, relying on the Spirit. Those are what uh, we're doing as a community. And so today we're looking at believing the gospel. What is a, a picture of the gospel? What's a picture of believing the gospel? You know, it's kind of like those two words, believing and gospel. Those are two church words. You go to most churches and you're going to hear those words. Well, okay, believing. You know, we can all say like, you know, what is it, you know, what, if you go to a church, what are the two words you're going to hear? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, believing, that seems like they, everybody talks about that. And there's probably a God, gospel, Jesus, throw that in there, God, throw that in there, faith, throw, you know, throw all those words in there. And it's like, but what are those, what does it mean? What's a picture of that? So we're going to look today at uh, this passage we have before us as a picture of both, uh, of, the, of the, what the gospel is, and what it would look like to believe it and receive it. But we often treat people how they have treated us. And so when it comes to God, we expect Him to treat us how we've treated Him. We expect Him to repay us according to how we've acted. We think that He acts the same way we do. That He's going to treat us like we've treated Him. So we've been good, He's going to be good to us. When we've been kind to Him, He's going to be kind to us. When we've been bad, He's going to be bad to us. And the story we're looking at today, told by Jesus, shows us how Jesus viewed God. It shows us how Jesus viewed the Heavenly Father, that He knew so deeply, that Jesus, the, the Father that He related to. This is the Father who sent me into the world. He sent me into the world to seek and save the lost. This is the God that, uh, the person, who, the human being who knew God the best, who knew the Heavenly Father the, the best, was Jesus. And he tells us a story to show us, this is the God I know. And I want you to know him in the same way I know him. But why does Jesus tell this story? The, the scriptures Larry read to us uh, showed us why Jesus was telling this story. We saw that there's these tax collectors and sinners that were told, you know, those sinners, uh, gathering around Jesus. They're drawing near to Jesus. And Jesus is okay with it. He's eating with them, hanging out with them, welcoming them. Uh, but then there's these religious leaders, there's uh, Pharisees um, and scribes, uh, who are grumbling about it. They don't like it. And Jesus knows it, so he tells these three stories uh, to do two things. To correct them, to correct their view of God, but not just correct them, uh, but to invite them. Because we're going to find out, we didn't read quite the whole story, we're going to find out that it's actually an invitation. It's not just like, hey dummies, uh, stop it. It's also an invitation to them. Um, to show them, like, hey, you, you've got something off here, and I want you to invite, be invited into what they're experiencing as well. And so, in the first story, he tells us, he shows us there's, there's this lost sheep. What happens if there's a lost sheep? The shepherd goes out and finds the sheep, and then there's rejoicing when the sheep is found. And then he says, you know what, when, when a sinner comes back and repents, there's rejoicing in heaven. God throws this party. And then he says, look, when, like when somebody loses a, a coin or something, right now, I think for like the last week, Katie's kind of getting tired of it. I have this like Columbia Zippy. You guys know it. When I turn it inside out, it's like it's like all sparkly on the inside. I can't find it. I keep. Oh, I've said what? to Katie, yeah, <laughs> news is news to Katie. I keep saying like, where's my Zippy? And I because I can't find it. And I'm like, you know, searching all over, trying to fight for where it is. You know, so it's like this lady loses this coin and she's searching all over the house. And you know, when I find it, I'm gonna be like, I found it. You know, I found the. You know, this lady finds her lost coin. And you know, well, there's rejoicing and he. God, again, Jesus says, 
when a sinner repents and turns back to God, there's this rejoicing in heaven, and God brings the angels together. Let's throw this party. And so Jesus says, there is rejoicing when a sinner comes. And he's saying, this is a picture of what's happening, you guys. These sinners are gathering around me, and you're grumbling about it. And then he tells us last story, the biggest one story of all. And so in verse 11, uh, we're going to have a uh, couple parts to this. The first part is the youngest son lives recklessly in verses 11 through 16. So verse 11, we're told, there's a man who had two sons. So it's about a man and his two sons. And often the focus when this story is told is just on the younger son. Uh, this younger son who lives a super reckless life. Uh, and But it's not just about the one son. It's a man who has two sons. So it's about the man and it's about both of his sons. And we need to get all of them uh, in, to get the full story. In verse 12, we're told that the younger son comes up to his dad and says, Father, give me the share uh, of property that's coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. And so what he's doing here is when the dad dies, he's gonna, the son, both the sons are going to get an inheritance. Uh, the older son would have gotten a double portion. So since there's two of them, it wouldn't get split in half. It would have been you know, a third and two-thirds. The older son would have gotten two-thirds. The younger son would have gotten one-third. And so he, your dad's not dead yet. Um, so some people say this would have been really offensive. Some people said this was kind of a common thing but wasn't recommended. It's like, hey, if somebody asks for this, like, don't do it. It's a bad idea. Like, don't give your inheritance out early. So, you know, kind of could have been an offensive thing. Some people said, like, it's kind of the younger son saying, like, I just kind of wish you were dead already. I just want the money. Um, whatever it is, it's like, this is kind of weird. Like, I want my inheritance now. Just divide it up. Give me the one-third that's coming to me now. Uh, but the dad would have had to, you know, this is like he has assets. I have his house and property and animals. He would have had to liquidate, you know, get it liquid into cash um, so that he could give his son the stuff. Like, okay, I guess... I'm going to have to sell a third of my stuff, like some of my property, some of my uh, livestock, some of my, you know, whatever it is, so I can give you your one-third of it now. And the dad um, agrees to it. He divides it up, gives it to him. Verse 13 tells us, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, there he squandered his property in reckless living. So just days later, he leaves home and Loses it all. I mean, you just imagine like somebody's like, "Hey, I want the family inheritance." It's like, okay, I don't know what you're gonna do with this, and you head, you know, heads off to Vegas or whatever. Just gambles it all away, and it's gone. You know, reckless living, we're told. And then verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. Wherever he went, famine arises, and he began to be in need. So he's hungry, or whatever it is, you know, there's nothing, no food around. He begins to be in need. In verse 15, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And now, to us, maybe that's not, like, super alarming. Like, okay, so he has to be a pig farmer. But um, to a Jewish person, if you go and read the law, um, that's like, what? You know, Jewish, to Jewish folks, uh, pigs were unclean. You don't mess around with pigs. And God said you don't. That's unclean. That makes you unclean. And so he's like, you know, desperate. Like, I was taught I don't touch pigs. And now he's like, okay, I'm going to go feed pigs. And so this would be alarming to the, tac to, uh, to the Pharisees and scribes listening to this. And then verse 16, we're told how desperate he is. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. You know, there's like 
these little uh, it's carob pods, like a um, uh, this tree or bush or thing that grew there, and they're giving him the the, the, fi- the pigs the the pods of this uh, tree that's growing there, and they're eating it. And he's just looking at it like I'm so hungry that I just want to eat what these the pigs are eating in their pen. Uh, but it says, and no one gave him anything. So he's just in such desperate, he's just longing for pig food. These pigs are just sitting there. I mean, you've ever seen pigs eat? It's not a very happy sight. <laughs> and he's just like, man, I would love to have that. You know, whatever they're eating. You know, it's like, you know, but he gets none of it. And so the son gets this one third, days later goes off, spends it all. Who knows, Dad, who knows what he's thinking? Like, am I ever going to see this kid again? Like, he just took off. Um, he could be as good as dead. Like, maybe I've lost this son forever. But in verses 17 through 19, <clears throat> we see the youngest son repents. Verse 17. <clears throat> when he came to himself, so he kind of wakes up, he said, well, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he kind of wakes up from, what have I done? And he prepares the speech, I'm going to go to my dad, and I'm going to tell him, I've, you know, I've disgraced this family. I've I took a third of the inheritance uh, of, that I asked for early and just went and I wasted it all. And wasted it on what? And now what do I have to show for it? And I'm coming back and he says, I'm not, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. I haven't acted like I should have acted. I haven't done the things I should have done. He's like, just treat me as one of your hired servants. And the son has done wrong and he's realized it. And he wants to return to his father, but he knows things can't go back to how they were. He asked for his, the inheritance early and his father sold it off and he's wasted it all. And he's dirty, he's stinky, he's hungry and he's poor. But he's also repentant and he's sorrowful. And he plans to tell his father that he sinned not only against him but against God. I've sinned against heaven and before you. And he says, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. I mean, he's disgraced his dad. Like this is just, and we may think like, oh, this happens all the time. Um, and this is a very different culture than ours. Honor shame culture uh, is like, and you, you just dishonored the family. Like the family name, <laughs> like literally drug it through the mud. Uh, and it's like, he's not held up the family name. And he should be treated as a hired servant, he's going to tell his dad. Perhaps to repay what he lost in the inheritance. Like, I'm going to work, I'm going to repay this back. I've lost a third. Treat me as a hired servant so I can repay this back. And maybe this <coughs> sounds too hard on himself. Uh, but the someone repenting, doesn't demand, expect, or feel entitled. Someone repenting feels low (coughs) and humble and unworthy. When we've done wrong and we know it, we don't go to the one we've wronged with our hand open like, okay, I'm back, and you got to give me forgiveness now because I'm back and I'm repenting. No, when we go to someone when we've done wrong, we don't expect or demand forgiveness. We go knowing we deserve nothing. If we go thinking we deserve something from them, that's not repentance, and that's not looking for, uh, you know, that's not repenting or remorse. That's coming demanding and expecting. And the person can give us grace, something we don't deserve, but if we're coming and demanding something from them. But the repentance looks like feeling low and humble and unworthy. Like, I don't, I've messed up. 
And I don't deserve anything from you. Like, look, coming to his dad and saying, uh, with no entitlement or demanding your expectation. But let's look at the father's response. Verses 20 through 24, the father's response. And let's just reread what happens here. And he arose, verse 20, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, I'm just going to pause. How would you feel to be embraced in this way after you've done something wrong? And just shout out feelings. How would you feel to be embraced this way after you've done something wrong? Shocked? Yeah. Confused. Confused, yeah. <laughs> Grateful. Grateful. Emotional. What was that? Emotion? Emotional. Emotional. Maybe a little skeptical. Skeptical? Like, I don't know, how can this be? Yeah. Anything else? You feel? Humbled. Yeah. <coughs> Humble, humbled, grateful, shocked, confused, emotional, possibly skeptical. The son expects and asks for far less than he gets. He expected, uh, I'm not even worthy to be your son. Treat me as a hired servant. He expects and asks for far less than he gets. And what is, I just wanted us to look at, what is the father like? And this is Jesus is telling us intentionally to show what is the Heavenly Father like. This is the Heavenly Father Jesus knows. And he has these, these religious leaders of his day looking and saying, grumbling about, Jesus, what are you hanging out with these sinners for? And he's saying, this is why. Because the Father I know, this is how he responds to sinners. And so what does the Father do? And so and what is the Father like? And I wanted to draw this comparison. What does the Father do and what doesn't the Father do? And so the father, what does he do? He feels compassion. Well, first of all, he sees him. And when he sees him, what does he do? He feels compassion. And he runs to him. He moves toward him. He feels, com- sees him. What does he do when he sees him? When he <coughs> sees a sinner repenting, he feels compassion. He runs to him, moves toward him. And he embraces him. He pours out affection. What does the father do? When he sees a sinner repenting, he feels compassion. 
He runs to him, he embraces him, and he pours out affection. Feels compassion, runs to him, embraces him, and pours out affection. He hugs him, kisses him. But what doesn't the father do? Well, the opposite of all those things. When he sees a sinner repenting, he isn't cold and hard. He feels compassion. He's warm. He's tender, sympathetic. That's what compassion means. He's not cold and hard, like, well, sitting on his porch, being like, well, here he comes. This ought to be good. You know? <laughs> it's not cold and hard to him. He feels compassion, and it wells up in him. He doesn't just wait for him, like, oh, oh boy, he's coming home. Like, he can't even contain himself. He goes to him. He doesn't move away from him. He moves towards him. He runs to him. And he doesn't distance himself from him or hold him at arm's length, but he embraces him. And he doesn't withhold love, but he pours out affection on him, that he hugs him and embraces him and kisses him. And the father is happy to see him. He's overjoyed. And what does it look like for God? You know, I think about Psalm 103. What's it look like for God to treat us like Psalm 103 talks about? Nick was, I think it was a couple months ago, Nick was doing that at the beginning of our service is Psalm 103. If you don't know it, I'm going to read a couple parts of it um, here. But it talks about God not repaying us uh, according to our sins, nor repaying, or not dealing with us according to our sins or repaying us for our iniquities. What does it look like for God to not deal with us according to our sins or repay us for our iniquities? It looks like this. That he sees a sinner repenting and he doesn't deal with his son according to his sins or repay him according to his iniquities. What does it look like to be treated with steadfast love as high as the heavens are, are, are above the earth? What does it look like for our transgressions to be removed as far as the east is from the west? That this son is coming to him and it's, not, it's like he doesn't even see his sin. It's like they're removed as far from him as the east is from the west. What's it look like for a father to show compassion on his children? I encourage you to go read Psalm 103 sometime this week. What does it look like, as David said, for God to wash us whiter than snow after we've sinned and to treat us that way? It's like he doesn't even see his sin as his son runs toward him. And so often we may try to forgive someone, but it's like their sin is still right there. It's like, I forgive you. But it's like we're still feeling all the things and we're still treating them like they've still sinned. Because they did, and we can't get over it. It's like it's still there. It's like, I forgive you. But I'm like, you know, still mad. I can't stop treating you that way. I can't get over what you did. It's like, I'm trying to get over it, but it's still right there. I still see the ugliness of what you did to me and the pain you did to me. But it's like this father just treats him like that sin's not even there. And the big idea for this passage that summarizes it is that God embraces those who've wronged him with lavishly abundant love. Big idea is God embraces those who've wronged him with lavishly abundant love. God embraces those who've wronged him with lavishly abundant love. Lavishly abundant, where I got that word, that's actually, the story is often called the prodigal son, and we've usually defined prodigal as like, oh, it's somebody who rebelled against their parents. Oh, prodigal... A prodigal is someone who rebelled against their parents. But the word prodigal means, if you look it up, it means recklessly extravagant or it means lavishly abundant. 
And the reason he's called the prodigal son is because he goes and he spends all the money. He's recklessly extravagant. Or he goes and spends so much money. Or he's lavishly abundant in how much he spends. And uh, there's a book by Tim Keller. And actually, um, it's, you could probably read this in an afternoon or a couple hours. Um, and so if anybody wants to borrow this, you know, just borrow it and then bring it back and somebody else can borrow it. It's, a, it's called The Prodigal God because he argues, actually, who's the most prodigal, who's the most recklessly extravagant, who's the most lavishly abundant person in this story? It's actually the father who gives the most abundantly in this story, who spends the most extravagantly in this story. Um, and so if anybody you know, wants to borrow this, like I said, if you spent 10 minutes a day for like two or three weeks, you could read this. It's very very short and small. I'll leave it out here and you can grab it or you can read it in the afternoon. Um, it's a good book. Um, but God embraces those who have wronged him with lavishly abundant love. Uh, but look at the, the lavish abundance of what the, this father puts on his son. There's just this lavishly abundant excitement and warmth and joy and celebration and parting and kindness and, and peace. There's no hostility between them. And it's like the, the son doesn't even get out his planned speech. I've got the speech. I'm going to say it to him. And he's like, treat me. You know, I'm not even worthy to be your son. And then he's like, you know, just treat me. He doesn't even get that out. He, before he can say, treat me as a hired servant, the father tells his servants, go get a party ready. It's kind of like what God does in the other stories. When a sinner repents, he tells the angels, let's, let's get a party going. And he tell, the father tells his servants uh, at the house, let's get a party going. And this is grace. Undeserving sinners treated the opposite of what we deserve. But this doesn't sit well with everyone. And we didn't read the last part of the story, but we are going to get there. So verses 15, the last part of the story is this. The older, son, the older son's response and the father's plea in verses 25 through 32. So we'll start in verses 25 through 27. We'll meet the second son that this man has. Verses 25 to 27. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So the older son, he's been working out in the field. He hears music and dancing. This party is happening. He asks, well, what's going on? And so a servant tells him, well, your younger brothers, come back. He's safe and sound. Verse 28 tells us, what's his response going to be? Well, oh, my brother's back? What? Well, this is just such good news. No. Verse 28, but he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. So the father not only moved towards his younger son, but when his older son is outside the party, he also moves towards him. He loves his older son as well, even though he's angry. He moves towards him as well. Verses 29 through 30, the older son has a speech too. The younger son had a speech. The older son has prepared a speech. What does he say? His father came out and entreated him, you know, please come into the party, come celebrate with us, come in here, come enjoy this. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fed and calf for him. So notice what he says, I've served you, and actually the, the words, slave for you these many years. And I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never 
gave me a young goat that I might celebrate. But when this son of yours, not my brother, not when my brother came home, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, so we get a little more detail, what did he do off in this far country with his reckless living? Prostitutes. He's dishonored this family. What did you do for him? You killed the fattened calf. You didn't even give me a goat. You've killed the fattened calf and meat. That's an expensive thing. You know, the fattened calf, best meat, whatever. You killed the fattened calf for him and threw a party for him, invited the neighbors, invited the relatives, and now look what you did for him. The father's response, verses 31 to 32. He said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This first thing he tells him is, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. And the son complains that the father never gave, never gave me a goat. The father says, you're always with me. The goat was always yours. You know, and he tells him, well, I've been slaving away for you. And like, well, I, you, you didn't have to do, you don't have to work for me like that. That's not what this was about. You, all is mine is yours. You didn't have to be working for me like that to think that that's what you're doing to slave away to someday get all this stuff. Like, all is mine was already yours already. Like, I wanted to give all this to you. you didn't have to work to get a goat from me. It was always yours. And he tells him, verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Why? Verse 32, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We've already heard this twice already. The servant said to the older son in verse 27, Why is there a party going on? Because your father has received your brother back safe and sound. And the father said to the younger son, or he was saying to the servants, Get a party ready because this son, because this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the story ends. And we don't know. Will the older son join the party or will he stand outside of it? Jesus told this parable because the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling about him eating with sinners. They were upset that all these sinners are drawing near to Jesus and Jesus is receiving them and welcoming them and uh, hanging out with them and eating with them. Jesus wanted to show them that God loves, welcomes, and embraces sinners who turn to him. And so Jesus tells these three stories about the lost things being found and ends each with rejoicing that the thing lost is found. And later on in Luke 19.10, he says, my mission is to seek and to save the lost. The Father longs to bring the lost home. And Jesus' mission is an expression of the, the Father's heart. He feels compassion for the lost. The Father runs to the lost when they return home. He welcomes them with open arms. He embraces them. He pours affection on them. He throws a party for them. And Jesus is this living picture of the Father's heart for the lost. And the Pharisees and scribes are looking at this living picture and they don't like it. The older son says, he devoured your property with prostitutes, and now you threw a party for him with the best steak for the whole town? I've slaved away for years and never disobeyed. How could you do that? The Pharisees and scribes look at these sinners and say, they don't deserve it. They've lived terrible lives. Don't you know what they've done? They haven't been keeping the law. They haven't been going to church services. They haven't been giving money. They haven't been serving. They haven't been good people. They've cheated people. They've taken money. They've done bad things. They haven't lived good lives. They don't deserve this. God embraces those who've wronged him with lavishly abundant love. And that's grace. It's God's undeserved favor. When we get grace, it doesn't only mean that we don't get punished. The son could have returned home and could have been like, okay, I'll let that slide. I'm not going to punish you for that. 
But the son not only doesn't get punished, he gets a party. He not only doesn't get, okay, you're, you're off the hook, but uh, you're, that's, that's it. He gets the opposite of what he deserves. He gets undeserved favor. And this is a picture of grace. Instead of exile, he gets embraced. Instead of rejection for his wrongs, he, re- he is received with warmth. Instead of getting punished, he gets a party. He doesn't earn it, he doesn't deserve it, but grace is offensive for those who believe your standing with God comes from what you do, that I've slaved away for you for all these years, and I've done all this stuff, and now he's done nothing, and he gets treated that way? You treating him with giving him all this stuff? The younger son is treated as if his reckless living never happened. And that's offensive to people keeping track of all the rules and how they've lived up to them and how other people haven't. But this, Jesus is trying to show them, this is the God you've always worshipped. And if this story sounds familiar, it's because the book of Jonah is exactly the same. Jonah hates that the city of Nineveh gets saved. And then God's like, Jonah's like, this is how you always are. I knew you would save these people. And then we never know if Jonah actually repents of hating the God that he says he worships for being so gracious and merciful. But this is the God who rescued them time and time again. And God's trying to say to them, like, look, this is the kind of God that is stuck with you, Israel, and all your waywardness and all your sinfulness. When you, were, when you were acting like the younger son, when he was merciful and gracious to you, when he was abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger in his faithfulness and keeping steadfast love and forgiving you, this is the God that you worship and serve. This is the story of the whole Bible. People who have wronged God are pursued by God and invited into relationship with Him and embraced by God with lavishly abundant love when they turn to Him. And so when we look at this picture of the Gospel, we ask, which one are we? And maybe we feel like, you know what? You know, I really feel like the younger son. And maybe you feel like, well, neither one quite describes me fully. But more than likely, there might be some characteristics of one or the other that describe you. Maybe it's like, you know, a little of this, a little of that describe me. If you're a follower of Jesus now, you were lost and you're now found. And more than likely, one of these two was you before you were lost, or before you were found by God. And that means we can tend to slip back into some of these attitudes. And so we need to watch for the symptoms of falling back into them. So how do we tend to be like the youngest son? The youngest son was far from God. He had this reckless living. He was in need. He squandered property and money. And he uh, was desperate. And he felt unworthy. He felt ashamed. Like, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And so sometimes when we're in that place, we can just feel like, you know what? Sometimes people say, like, if I ever walked in a church building, God would strike me dead. That's how people who are the younger son feel. Like, I'm... I can't even go there. Like I need to clean myself up before I can ever go into a church building or be with God people. And so maybe that's you, and sometimes you just feel like, i got to clean myself up. Or maybe sometimes you feel, fall back into bad habits, and you're like, I need to get out of those before I can be, go back to God. But Jesus tells this story. The thing about the younger son is they know they have a problem. So let me focus a little bit on the older son. Because that's who this story is really told toward. Because you know, the younger sons know they have an issue. Older sons, Jesus tells us to the Pharisees and the scribes and religious leaders who don't know they have a problem. Because they're like, what are you, why are you hanging out with these people? And Jesus always told them, like, 
you know, uh, the sick need a doctor. Uh, and the problem with the scribes and the religious leaders, the people who think they're righteous, don't know they need a doctor, even though they're very sick. So how can we tend to be like the older son? Well, toward God, look how they treat the father. Look how the older son treats his father. When we do what we're supposed to do, we get mad when God doesn't give us what we want. The older son is like, I did everything I'm supposed to do and you didn't give me what I want. I've done everything for you. I've been slaving for you all these years. You never gave me a goat. He's like, it was always... I've always loved you. There's all yours anyway. You didn't have to work for it. You're 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 my son. There's always mine. And the issue with with him, with us who are older sons, uh, like the older son, is that we're religiously close but relationally far. He was always there, always obeying, always dutifully doing what he was supposed to do. He's always in church services. He's always serving, always putting money in the offering plate. He's always showing up and signing up for things and doing the things he's supposed to do, always busy doing God's stuff. But he's religious. He's religiously close but relationally far, which is very dangerous because it's like having a terminal cancer and working in a hospital and it's undiagnosed. It's like you're dying and going to die and you have no idea. And he's... Uh, he never sins and he keeps all the commandments and yet he's far from God. Why? Because he doesn't love him. He doesn't love the Father. He's kept the Father's commands without loving the Father. It's like, how can that be? And you can see he obeys the Father's commands but he doesn't love the Father's character because when the Father does, when he shows his character, he's outraged. He's outraged at the Father's grace and mercy and generosity. He's like, I hate that you are so gracious how could, you, how could you be this way to him? How could you be so gracious and so merciful and so loving? How could you be so generous with him? I hate that. He hates his father. He hates how his father is. He doesn't say, I'm just so honored that you're my dad, that this whole village got to see how generous and loving and gracious my father is. And he's not revering him and respecting him and admiring him and wants to be like him. And he's like the shining beacon of love that he's proud to call dad. No, he hates it. How could you do this? He stands outside the party. He dishonors his dad just as much as the other son did because he won't even join the party his dad's throwing for the whole town. He's not proud to call him dad. He's angry at how his dad is, even though he's doing everything his dad said. So he dishonors his father, even though he's doing all the things he's supposed to do. But he doesn't even know it because he's doing it so that he can get stuff from the dad in the end. He's, but his dad's like, it was all yours anyway. You didn't have to do this. And toward other people, look how he treats his brother. He's morally upright. He's angry, judgmental, critical, resentful, and bitter. And life is about rule keeping, doing things right, doing your duty, making sure everyone else does things right. And they do their duty. And we show our tendency to be older brothers when we treat people like we think they deserve to be treated. Like, you know what? You fell short, and so I'm going to treat you like you deserve to be treated. Like, we kind of, when we read passages in the Bible, we hear sermons, we think, you know, I wish so-and-so was here because I really needed to hear this. Instead of, I really need to hear this, and God have mercy on me. We think, you know, I wish some this person was here. Like, read this passage, like, oh, I need to go talk to so-and-so about this pastor. Instead of we come before God and we feel we need mercy, we need grace. And we do 
And we talked before about what does the Father do uh, and what is the opposite of those things. And he has this compassion. He moves towards the person and he showers this affection on them. But older brothers are cold. They're hard. They move away from people when they sin. They distance themselves. They hold at arm's length and they hold, withhold love. And they're resentful and bitter and angry and judgmental when people uh, sin and fall short and do the wrong thing and make mistakes. And I can sp- speak from this because this is the person I most relate to because uh, I've grown up in church my whole life. And so I tend to measure everybody and myself by what we don't aren't doing, by what I'm not doing and by what other people aren't doing, and measure people by uh, a law, and it's easy to compare to other people. And so it's like the older brother, it's like, yeah, that's who I relate to. Is like it's easy to be resentful when people fall short. It's easy to, easy to anger people. It's easy to easy to compare and, and judge people. Like, well, if only they get their act together. Oh, well, how how could that happen? That's unfair. Why don't they just do this instead of being like? And so I've the both these people need the same thing. They need the gospel. The good news both need to hear is that God embraces those who've wronged wronged Him with lavishly abundant love, and God has compassion on you. If you're the younger if you're the younger son who's felt like, man, I've just wrecked my life so many times. God has compassion on you. He's waiting with open arms for you to turn to him. He will not turn you away. And if you're the older son, you need to keep looking at that picture too. And I've just this this is a passage I go to that what the Father does was the, I think it was verses twenty through twenty four, how the Father responds is a pass I go to that scenario over and it's probably one of the verses I go to that picture over and over in my head because it's one of the, because I need to see it over and over. It's a picture that I need to see over and over when I'm feeling like uh, this person has let me down, or uh, I'm ha- angry towards this person, or I'm resentful to this person, or I'm bitter, or I'm upset, or I'm disappointed with this person. I need to go back to that and look. How has God treated me? Like I I've sinned. And this is how God treats me when I sin. And so this is how I need to treat other people when they've sinned against me, is that I can't be cold to them and hard towards them, hold them at arm's length and distance myself. What does God do to me? He moves towards me, he runs towards me, compassion, and he welcomes me, embraces me, and pours affection on me. And so how do I treat other people how, uh, how God has treated me? Because we so often will uh, we'll treat other people, you know, this is... Uh, this is how they've treated me, or we try to muster up in ourselves. Uh, oh, the, this is uh, this is how I would like to be treated. But how would we like to be treated? We like to be treated how God treats us. God treats us the best. And so I go back to this passage over and over. This is how God treats me, and that's the how I like to be treated. The best way for me to be treated is how God treats me. And so how do I give that out to others? Like I go back to this story over and over of just what does the Father do? For this son, and like that's what he does for me because yes, I'm unworthy too. Even if I feel like I've kept all the stuff, I've done all the things. But then there's lots of days where it just feels like I've just messed up so much. Like I can't keep all this up. Like I've tried to be perfect, and I just fall short all the time. And so I need it, whether I feel like the younger son or the older son judging people. I just go back to both of them over and over for this picture of the gospel. And we so often define our standing before God by what we do in the antidote. It's believing the gospel because when we look at what is done to the Son, 
it's all done to him and it's not what he does and so I, I want you to write this question down as something to ask yourself this week just ask it over and over again how much does God love you and like you right now answer it in your head or write it down how you would answer it how much does God love you and like you right now how much does God love you and like you right now? How much does God love you and like you right now? And why? So you can feel like, well, God kind of likes me a lot today because I kind of kept a lot of commandments today and I avoided a lot of bad things today. All that it's done to the Son. If we base it on what we do, it's always going to be fluctuating up and down. But all this stuff is done to him. He's seen, he's ran to, he's embraced, he's kissed, he's showered with affection, a robe is put on him, a ring is put on him, shoes are put on him, a party is thrown for him, he's celebrated, he's rejoiced over, a feast is prepared for him, and it's all done to him. It's nothing he does. He doesn't even get his full speech out. He just comes and it's just like, woof, it just all gets thrown onto him and it's all done to him and so we're now our relationship with God is not defined by something we do it's all defined by something God does to us that's our core fundamental identity and so often we think you know I'm just a, I'm just kind of garbage I'm a sinner I'm a wretch I'm dirty rotten and we come before God and we're like God I'm all these things and yet you still love me no if we have trusted in Jesus we're about to sing the song how deep the Father's love for us and in the first line it says that God makes a wretch his treasure that we are no longer wretches if you've trusted in Jesus you're not God doesn't see you as a wretch or a sinner or dirty and rotten or garbage if you trust in Jesus you're his treasure he sees you as his beloved son or daughter it's not because of what you've done it's something he's done to you and showered on you so as a community we're called to love and enjoy God who embraces those who've wronged him with lavishly abundant love. We love him. We enjoy him. We couldn't be happier to call him our father because he's the best. And what a party it is to be a part, what a party it is to be a part of his family. What a privilege. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us into your family. Thank you for running to us, embracing us, loving us, showing us with affection. Son's name we pray.